0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Please be seated. Thy strong word did cleave the darkness. That was true when God said, let there be light. It was true when God in human flesh cast out the demons. And it is true when our Lord Jesus Christ announces his absolution, the forgiveness of sins into our darkened hearts thy strong word did cleave the darkness. Almost always the lectionary will pair an Old Testament text with a gospel text of the same theme. And today's theme is obvious enough. The word of God, though it may sometimes seem weak, is greater than all other powers. The strong word of God is sometimes like a hammer that breaks the rock instantly. And other times it's more like a rock, a rock against which all else is broken. The strength of God's word, though not always evident, doesn't depend on the vessel or messenger, as Jeremiah also found out we saw how Jeremiah was lamenting to God that he was too young for the prophetic task. Not unlike Moses, who believed that his stuttering would be an insurmountable problem. Or St. Paul, of whom it was said, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech amounts to nothing. While it is certainly true that no fallen man is up for the task of preaching, It is curious that over and over again, God selects men who would seem to us to make very poor preachers. certainly not how we would do things if we were in charge. We would gather together a cadre of hand-picked messengers, men chosen specifically for their personalities or their eloquence or their education. That's how we'd order and run things. But that's not how God does it. He calls through his church. And in a congregation, he places a man who, more often than not, seems to be a rather interesting choice. And God's point is as subtle as it is obvious. The power is not in the speaker. The power is in his own divine word. God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in the womb, God says. And those words are indeed a hammer against the proud heart of every American. And they are indeed a rock against which every pro-abortion soul will be dashed. It is God himself who forms every person in the womb. It is therefore a fact that we are living in the midst of a holocaust. That America is every bit as bad as Nazi Germany. No more can we hide the truth from ourselves. We are living in Sodom or worse. And we need to understand this so that we would repent, not hardly, but heartily, and separate ourselves spiritually like it's no joke. What fellowship does light have with darkness? So that when divine retribution does come, we're not confused as to what's happening. And we remember that first God punishes sin, with more sin, and then with destruction. We have been given to call, we have been called to stand, we have been given to speak against insurmountable odds, not unlike Jeremiah, or Moses, or Paul, but to stand against so much darkness, it's simply overwhelming. And yet, God assures us as he has assured his saints of every age, that his word is utterly sufficient. His word does indeed rule the nations and kingdoms, whether we recognize it or not. And his word does indeed pluck up and break down. It does indeed destroy and overthrow. And it does indeed build and plant. It may seem like the nations are impervious to God's word. That those who trample God's word simply get away with it. Not so. Kingdoms are dashed against that word. Not a single kingdom from the ancient world remains. And not a single kingdom today will remain. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Those who trample God's word are in the span of mere decades at the longest, brought down by it. They stumble and fall into their graves as it pronounces their death sentence. So repent. Repent with me and repent with the whole church on earth. What seems to us to be so powerful, so sure, a force of darkness greater than anything we can fathom, is in fact nothing. The Word of God will pluck it up, break it down, destroy it, and overthrow it. And it will indeed build anew and plant anew. All of this, of course, comes to its fullness in Christ Jesus, the Word of God in human flesh. The crowds, we read, were astonished by his teaching, for his Word possessed authority. He spoke and taught as one greater than Moses, one greater than the prophets, as the source of truth himself, indeed as truth himself. And the authority of his word as he spoke was manifest. Demons were cast out. Did you notice the curious language? Even when he's standing above Peter's mother-in-law, and he's going to cure her of the fever, how does he do it? He rebukes it. By the power of his word, demons are cast out. By the power of his word, sickness is cast out. There's a curious aside. Why do the demons tell everyone who Jesus is? Why do they call him by the name Jesus of Nazareth and then give him messianic titles, the Holy One of God and the Son of God? And if they are preaching Christ, as it were, Why on earth does Jesus silence them them and not allow them to speak? The Lutheran Study Bible suggests that in using his name, the demons were trying to exercise control over him, which may be the case. At least I try to do that with my kids. Another possibility is that the demons wanted Jesus to be known as a miracle worker, an exorcist, and not as the savior of men's souls, which may also be the case. But even more obvious is the simple fact that Jesus wants nothing to do with them, no matter what they're doing. And he will have nothing to do with them, no matter what they're saying. They must be silent, for he, the Word of God, has come. Certainly the people, for their part, would have been quite content with Jesus, the miracle worker. Did you read that in the text, or hear that? he was healing people all night long. And the next day, when the the sun began to come up, he must have made some sort of excuse and excused himself. And when no one was looking, he departed to a desolate place. But the crowds, when they tracked him down, begged him to stay and do more miracles. What he said is telling. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Not miracles, but preaching. That's the greater work. Thy strong word. Now we learned earlier from Luke what Jesus was doing in his preaching. When Jesus unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, he said, this word of God is fulfilled in your midst. The entire Old Testament points to and speaks of me, the one who has come to reverse all things, to set an upside-down world right-side up again. Good news will be preached, but not to the rich, to the poor, liberty, not to those who think they are free, but to those who know they are captives. Sight, not to those who say we see, but to those who know they're blind. Liberty, not to the oppressors, but to the oppressed. And the year of the Lord's favor, which means no sowing or reaping, no toil on the part of man, but all debts forgiven all slaves released. In other words, terrible news for sinners who wish to remain in their sins, but unimaginably good news for sinners who would be free. This good news comes to us without cost, and that only because our Lord Jesus himself would pay it, not with gold or silver, but with something infinitely more valuable, his own holy and precious blood. The word became flesh, assumed flesh and blood so that he might offer his flesh on the cross and pour out his blood as a sacrifice for us. If we want to understand this text, we ought to ask a very simple question. Why on earth is there such a thing as demon possession? One word, sin. And again, we might ask, Why on earth is there such a thing as sickness? Again, one word, sin. If not for sin, the powers of sickness and death would have no power over us. If not for sin, the powers of darkness would have no power over us. Sin has cut us off from the one who is light and life, and so we are subject to darkness and death. Sin is the problem. And Jesus has come to change all that. His power to do so is evident. He rebukes both demon and fever, both the powers of darkness and the powers of death. He can do so only because he has come to take care of sin, to reconcile us to the one who is light and life. Since sin is the root cause, Jesus must take all our sin into himself, and that is what he does. Not in the abstract, but but concretely. All your idolatry and mine, subtle and overt, your hardened heart and mine, find it so difficult to pray. Your neglect of God's word and mine. Your boredom with preaching and mine. Your rejection of the authority that God has put over you in church, in state, in home, and my own. Your murderous thoughts and filthy desires and my own. Your thefts and all your clever deceits, along with mine. Along with your scheming and your unending questions quest for more, that I know so well myself. Upon him, upon Christ the crucified, was laid the iniquity of us all. And so we have been bought back to God. Bought back by the scourging, by the nailing, by the piercing, by the hell of being utterly forsaken by God. We have been bought back And so you and I were bought at a price. We were bought at a price so that we might be set free from our sins. That the shackles of sickness and death would be burst. That we who are slaves to the principalities and powers of darkness would be released. All of this Jesus has done in the only way that it could be done by his own innocent suffering, and death, by his own most holy and precious blood. It is this very blood that he puts to your lips this morning. He touches it to your mouth in order to make your whole body clean. It is poured inside of you in order to give you a clean heart and a new spirit. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, the scriptures say. But in Christ crucified, there is blood, and there is forgiveness. From the greatest sin to the least, the bloody word of forgiveness has blotted them all out. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.